Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and the way that we'll harness natural resources to meet our future energy needs. My name is Tom Quinn. I'm the Analysis and Insights Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. At the beginning of the year, I wrote a blog identifying key trends in offshore renewables that I predicted would take off this year. Now, before we finish up for Christmas, I'm joined by Gavin Smart, head of our analysis and insights team, to discuss just how accurate our predictions have been and what 2021 has in store for the world of offshore renewable energy. So without further ado, let's get started. All right. So let's start with going through each of the predictions that you and the rest of the team made at the beginning of the year to see how accurate these were, and even if we could have been more ambitious. Nervous? No, no, I'm pretty confident about this, actually. (laughs) Whether it's luck or intelligence, we'll see. Okay, so number one, the long-awaited UK energy policy white paper will be published by the government. Yeah, that's that's right. This is a long-awaited paper, and we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. But there was a commitment that was rolled out as part of the the government's 10-point green recovery plan to publish it by the end of 2020. So I think that's going to be interesting. I'd be quite interested to get your thoughts, actually, Gavin, on on what it might include. I mean, some of the things that we mentioned at the start of the year um, about, you know, announcing support for floating wind and tidal, things have accelerated a bit, certainly on the the floating wind side through the CFD consultation this year. And the announcement recently that uh, the POT2 is definitely going to include allowance for, for floating wind and tidal and other marine energies. So the, the detail obviously still to be announced, but um, I guess maybe that preempts it and the, the white paper will maybe just consolidate or codify some of that. Yeah, and I think it's going to be really important to give some clarity and, and direction for the industry, especially if we are going after 40 gigawatts by 2030. It's going to need a lot of work and a lot of coordination. Yeah, that's true. And I think some of that um, that kind of target setting is probably going to, we'll see the relevance of that when we talk through some of the other predictions as well. So how about our new market entrance then, Tom? What's happened there? Yeah, so last year we saw the Italian oil major, ENI, joining forces with mainstream renewable power. And we predicted that we were going to see more oil and gas majors coming into the, the UK offshore market. So we've seen that happen. I think we get a tick for that. Uh, Total has signed up for both the Erebus Floating Wind Project and they've taken a stake in Seagreen. On the off-taking side, we've got Shell... Uh, they've just recently signed uh, an offtake agreement for some of the Dogger Bank capacity. So that in the, in the UK has been pretty big. Elsewhere around the world, we're seeing moves by the oil and gas majors. BP's made uh, a big deal with Equinor in the, in the US. And then coming back to the UK, we've got the Irish uh, energy firm ESB. So they've made a, a few deals in the offshore sector. They were already present onshore, but we've seen them take a stake in the NNG project and in Inchcape with, with Redrock. It's a bit more than just one or more oil majors or kind of other energy companies buying into UK offshore wind projects. This seems to be taking form in a, in a few different ways. Yeah, that's right. You've got some uh, that are buying in at, you know, fairly late on in the development of these projects and then other companies looking at developing them from, from scratch early on. So a bit of a mix. Uh, and then, of course, with Shell, take the offtake agreement, that's even further down the line. And going back to, we mentioned there about our ambitious 2030 targets with 40 gigawatts of offshore wind. 
I guess with these new players coming in, um, you know, it's going to take a, a lot of money as well as a lot of expertise. So this can only be a good thing. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at the strategy of the oil and gas majors. They are potentially not quite as cash rich as they were before the oil price collapsed, but compared to a lot of other developers, they, they will have the financial strength to develop some of these projects. They're going to be looking at the niches where they can really add value. And I think with a lot of floating wind potentially being awarded in the upcoming rounds, that might be an area for them to focus on. Makes a lot of sense. The other thing, or one of the other things that we looked at in the predictions was the growing momentum of hydrogen, the H word. How about that? Yeah, hydrogen's been getting a lot of airtime recently. It's something that most people are viewing as essential for reaching net zero targets. There's some that uh, don't fully back the idea, but I think we're seeing a lot of uh, various developments going on and companies putting money where their mouth is. So there's been a bit of a mix of upstream or production projects and also on the demand side, some uh, use cases for hydrogen being tested and piloted. So on the hydrogen production side, we're seeing a couple of projects that are being uh, discussed by some of the developers. So Orsted are looking at a project in the Humber, which is green hydrogen. So that's using um, offshore wind to power electrolyzers. So that's in partnership with ICM Power and a couple of other partners. And then there's also blue hydrogen. So blue hydrogen is reforming natural gas and capturing the carbon and storing it. So Equinor is looking at a project in, in Hull to do that. We're seeing a couple of these projects which are industrial clusters looking to develop hydrogen. But then we're also seeing some movement on the demand side. Most recently, we've got a project that is in Fife. Uh, so the Levenmast turbine is going to be powering green hydrogen again, which is going to be supplied to 300 homes in the first phase. They're going to be using hydrogen boilers, so using 100% hydrogen for their heating. So that was really encouraging to hear you mention that um, there's, there's movement going on both the, the kind of technology push side as well as the demand side. Because this is one example of kind of emerging technology where things can fall between the cracks or, or you end up in this vicious circle of um, why would you create the technology if the demand isn't there but at the same time unless convincing you know and cost effective technologies come through you don't have the demand the levers are being pulled on on both sides is uh, is really important here hydrogen is used there's quite a lot of it used in industrial projects at the moment but it's stepping it up and, and understanding where that demand is going to come from is it going to be home heating is it going to be in transport or in freight Trying to understand the size of that is going to be really important, especially in the next couple of years. And like you said, seeing it come together in the H100 project in Fife, the green, green hydrogen production and, and what it's going to be used for domestically is great to see. So moving on from that then, we'd also predicted that we would see the first offshore wind project taking financial investment decision on a merchant basis. How's that been? Maybe we get half a tick for this. We've not had any projects that are taking 100% merchant risk. So essentially not using the CFD mechanism or any other form of state support and just relying on the wholesale power pricing. So we've not seen that 100%, but Seagreen is, is going to be operating on a partial merchant basis. So some of it will be with a standard CFD. Some of it is what they're calling a private CFD with one of the parent companies of uh, SSE. And then 28% is going to be taking the market risk. So we're definitely seeing the steps in the right direction. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting one to understand 
the risk. Um, some developers might be looking at the long-term power pricing and saying, well, with CFDs being so low and strike prices being very, very low, it's we've potentially got more upside uh, with the wholesale price. And it might be a, a risk that some of them are willing to take. Of course, you then have the issue of trying to get financing for these projects on that basis. It's going to be more challenging. And I guess there is that bit of a the coming together or kind of two different perspectives. Like you said, when you look at the, the long term, where power prices are going to go in the, in the future as we get more renewables on, on the grid is really hard to predict for a start. But like you said, with the, the kind of low level CFD, I guess people can still see some upside from taking the market risk. But I guess one of the interesting things at the moment is, um, you know, where energy prices are today. And you mentioned about, you know, the oil price crashing before it makes even the near term outlook really, really kind of hard to predict and make any kind of call on. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I guess it's where oil and gas companies might come into this as well, because they're used to operating in a very volatile commodity prices. So it might be an area where they, they're happy to take that risk. And it also ties in quite nicely with hydrogen, because if we're able to prove up green hydrogen and get it cost competitive, then all of a sudden it gives another revenue avenue for these operators. Goodness gracious, it sounds like all four of the predictions we've, we've talked <laughs> so far are somehow interlinked and in creating this lovely positive circle between you know policies on floating wind, oil and gas majors coming in, taking market risk, getting interested in hydrogen. So if somehow, if this fifth prediction that we're going to talk about also links in with this, um, it'll be very close to, even for me, giving a bit of a gold star. <laughs> well, we're all about holistic and integrated energy visions here. No, I think I'll go back to one of your opening comments about maybe you're just lucky. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so number five, data and digital challenges and opportunities. What kind of things are we looking at there? Yeah, so in the predictions, we were talking about the potential for cyber attacks, because this is something that has been flagged up recently. We've seen EDP had a ransomware attack. We've seen some of the grid balancing companies coming under attack. Now, nothing was shut down. We didn't have any blackouts as a result, but it, I think it was a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of these uh, companies and for the industry more widely. So I know that our data and digital team are working on various projects looking at this, and it's something that is a major risk for the future. The other side of the data and digital um, was looking at automation in the O&M space. And the prediction was that we'd have a drone delivering some uh, equipment or uh, replacement parts to a turbine. Now, we didn't quite get it right. Equinor did use a drone to deliver to a platform, but it was a gas field rather than an offshore wind turbine. So we're close, but not quite on the mark. Mm, okay, so Silver Star at least. Again, the principle, as, as you said, in terms of the technology and, and what it's capable of, and um, we can start seeing the application um, and how things are, yeah, should be coming through in the offshore wind industry as well. So that's been good on the things that we did predict. So is there anything that maybe we, we missed any areas that really got a lot of momentum this year that we, we didn't know at the start of the year? Well, we mentioned this in our previous podcast that we didn't predict COVID happening. That's understandable. But what's been quite interesting is the response of the sector to COVID. It's not been as potentially as, as bad as some of the other sectors in the economy. And we've still seen a lot of innovation happening this year across you know, equipment and components and, uh, and also policy. We've seen operators as well um, adapting very well to how they service and maintain assets um, you know, how they, how they get crews out to wind farms and how they change things onshore as well. So I think, yeah, it does point to the resilience of the sector. And I guess it's also 
as you mentioned before, about you know ten point plan and the green recovery. If if anything, there's a, there's potentially some long term benefits in terms of the the momentum that's now gathered and, and the interest that, that people are starting to come behind the industry. And if we get down to some of the details of what's happened this year, I don't think it would have been a great prediction for us to say that you know we're going to see bigger wind turbines. That is a pretty weak prediction to make given how, how likely it is. But what were the actual specifics of it? So Siemens announced a 14 megawatt uh, new model which can be boosted to 15 megawatts. And the blade is 108 meters long, which is one meter longer than the than the LM blade, which is going to be used on the GE 12 megawatt turbine. So that LM blade is something that was uh, tested by our, our testing and validation team in Blythe, and that was certified this year. So that's a, a really big step for GE and the Halliad X model. And maybe unsurprisingly, Vestas have, have announced that they're also planning a significantly larger turbine. So I don't think we've got full details on that, but that just kind of adds to the, the excitement bubbling away in the turbine market. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to see larger and larger models, which does help with our you know longer term target of all these gigawatts required by 2030. So anything else, um, just what we mentioned, Vestas, anything popped up in the news on them? Yeah, so we've seen quite a lot of consolidation in the OEM um, space in the last few years. One of the big ones uh, from previous years was Siemens and Gamesa merging. And this year we saw Vestas purchase an additional 50% of MHI Vestas. So now they effectively own it outright. And MHI Vestas will be brought into the wider Vestas family. The interesting thing is that now leaves us with effectively three large manufacturers of, of equipment. You've got Vestas, Siemens, Gamesa and GE. The turbines are, are moving along and uh, in terms of other kind of parts of the supply chain, I think there's been some other exciting stuff. One of the uh, parts of the sector deal is that the UK increases its local content and, and manufacturing in the UK. And one of the big gaps that we'd identified in foundations was the lack of a monopile manufacturing facility. So this year we had Korean steel company SEAH, which is committed to building a monopile facility in the Humber. Uh, so this is going to be great for um, the UK economy and for jobs in the sector. Yeah, and it's, it's great because, as you said, when we did the UK Foundation Strategic Capability Assessment in 2019, it was one of the areas that, that we saw that with the right kind of investment in the right location, there's no reason why with the the market taking off as it is, you know, the, the level of demand versus the supply out there, the UK is not as, as well positioned as anyone else to host a big manufacturing plant. So fantastic that things have moved so quickly. It's great and nice to know that someone is reading our reports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's definitely take it that way. <laughs> so there was something else that was announced fairly recently. I, I heard about there's Scottish Power, National Grid and SSE have agreed to build a, a two gigawatt subsea cable between Scotland and England. That sounds pretty useful. Yeah, it's it's vital. And it's something that hopefully we'll see more of in the future because we currently have these bottlenecks in the grid that are uh, potentially hindering or acting as a barrier for future developments of offshore renewables. So it's going to be really important for Scotland. And we might come on later to talk about Scotwind and the leasing rounds, but none of that's going to be possible without these kind of grid connectors. Both for the success of, of Scotwind and also, you know, in terms of that, again, that 40 gigawatt ambition, there's always this conundrum of where the, the resource is situated versus where the, the demand is. So all these initiatives are definitely going to make a big impact, aren't they? 
Speaking of 2021, I know we'll, we'll probably want to take a bit more time and, and do some, uh, you know, go around the houses internally and, and get a, a few more thoughts about what people see coming ahead. But um, just based on what you've seen in this review, you get any initial thoughts about what 2021 holds for us? Yeah, I think that the recently announced 10-point green industrial revolution that was announced by government is going to play a big part. The very first point in that was building out offshore wind. Uh, so it really shows how central it is to, I guess, economic recovery in the country. And the second point was talking about hydrogen. So again, these themes keep on coming up. Uh, and it's good to see that the government are backing these and I guess it ties into the report that we recently published with the Oil and Gas Technology Centre, which is looking at an integrated energy vision for the North Sea. That report really highlights how important it is to start this transition as early as possible and also deploy uh, offshore wind and, and hydrogen as quickly as possible so that we effectively don't lose any jobs and lose any expertise in the North Sea energy sector. I think that's a that's a really good point. I guess we can almost make a difference between things that we'd like to see next year and you know and things that we can more realistically predict. But building on what you said there about the integrated energy vision and that and that need to push forward so that we're creating the new jobs at the same time as you know other jobs are potentially needing to transition. I would certainly like to see a world where if we have this ambition for one gigawatt of floating wind by 2030. Even though we're sitting here in 2020 and that's 10 years away, the, the timelines for developing and constructing an offshore wind farm are, are still pretty long. So as well as the Scotland leasing, it would be great to see some sites being made available in England and Wales through a leasing process in the next year, two years at the most. So that again, you know, we're having the projects coming through that are allowing these, these jobs to transition to where they're needed. Yeah, that, that's right. And I guess talking about floating wind, it's been said by many in the industry that we need to stop building pilot projects and start building what could be deemed as utility scale projects. So, um, you know, over 300 megawatts. That sounds like quite a lot, but I know we were discussing recently that 300 megawatts, it, it's only potentially 20 turbines if you're looking at these new 15 megawatt models. So 20 turbines all of a sudden doesn't sound like very much. And for an oil and gas company with expertise in offshore equipment and installations, it might be a breeze. That does change things a lot. And, you know, again, we need to look at what that means for UK manufacturing and, and what our, our part is in that in terms of getting larger slice of the construction pie. So floating, I mean, it's going to be, you know, Scotland should be a big part of that. So we have the Scotland leasing process going forward in earnest in 2021. Do you think there'll be much take-up for Scotland leases? Yeah, I imagine um, it'll be very popular. There's some fantastic resource. And and with, you know, these grid improvements being made that we mentioned, it, it removes some of these bottlenecks and makes it even more attractive. So I know that uh, they're looking at um, the, the target of 10 gigawatts being awarded in the next Scotland leasing round, um, which if you add to the one gigawatt that's already uh, in the pipeline that gets us to 11. So that's a big contribution to the 40 gigawatt target in 2030. And so thinking again about um, market entrance, do we see a bit more of that? Yeah, I think we're going to see more consolidation in the in the sector. I'd imagine that we're going to see some of the oil and gas majors again looking for projects 
some of them might be more interested in value in overseas markets where there's a bit more of a niche for them. We're also likely to see some divestment from developers that have you know, managed to bring the projects along to a certain point and looking for other opportunities. And interesting, I mean, I think with that volume, you know, and the consolidation, I think, um, so we haven't got statistics for 2020, but I know, you know, from Wind Europe, when they report transaction volumes and values for onshore and offshore wind, after a peak of 20 billion in 2016, the investment in offshore wind, you know, according to the stats, was down at 6 billion in 2019. Interesting to see what it was in 2020, but I imagine we're going to see another big rise next year. So I think that the value of these transactions is going to start, maybe not going through the roof, but I can see it on the rise again. Yeah, yeah, maybe recovering back to what it was. But it's, it's definitely going to be a feature in the next few years as companies try and maximise their value. Are there any other things that you have in mind that you think we're going to be putting in our predictions? Again, you do have the right to, to change when we actually force you <laughs> to paper for the blog next month. Yeah, well, I'm going to be having my usual discussions with our engineers and, and bright sparks across the catapult. People other than me, you mean? Other, other than you, uh, people that know what they're talking about. So on the, on the technology side, I imagine that automation is going to be a pretty important part for next year. We might see some more robots, some more drones, and potentially improvements in vessels and, and automation in, in vessels as well. Something else that is becoming more and more important is the circular economy. So we're expecting to see potentially some announcements and some new uh, advancements in technology to reduce the impact of offshore wind. I think that's a really important point, actually, Tom. You know, growing kind of recognition of the, I was going to say that the hidden issues, but you know, the kind of some of the side issues around sustainability of what gets used in offshore wind, as well as the end of life and, and recycling kind of angle. One other area which, you know, OIRE Catapult is really involved with, along with a number of other stakeholders, is looking at the vessel decarbonisation. And I think that's something that there's growing momentum behind, and I can only see that that getting bigger. One really encouraging angle around that decarbonisation is the willingness of North Sea countries, for example, to work together. So we're seeing an initiative brought together by the Department for Transport here in the UK, and with international partners uh, from around around the North Sea and many different uh, industry and policy stakeholders. Uh, and that's been really encouraging because we have big ambitions to, to decarbonise the vessels by 2030, tying in with the volume of activity. That's, that's going to, I was going to say, grow arms and legs. I don't think you need arms and legs on a vessel, although that maybe make them low carbon. But I don't know, I mean, have you um, got any thoughts particularly about the decarbonisation angle, Tom? Yeah, I think that you've highlighted the important point is that there's collaboration between various North Sea countries because the infrastructure that's required to decarbonize vessels, whether you're looking at hydrogen or ammonia or electrification, the infrastructure is going to be very expensive and there needs to be you know, one or maybe two solutions that are picked up and run with because if every country tries to do their own thing or every developer tries to do their own thing it's just not going to be cost effective yeah and and i think there's a bit of a parallel with with what we mentioned before about hydrogen with the technology push and the market pool that it's a lot more than just electric vessels or you know hydrogen vessels as you said there's a a whole load of infrastructure that goes with that in terms of how you charge them where the fuel's generated and where the, the vessels go to refuel and so, yeah, do, doing that in a, a joined up way and approaching the, the demand and supply sides and the international aspects together has to be a positive. 
So overall, it sounds like there's a, there's a lot to look forward to in, in 2021. And well, let's face it, it can only be better than 2020. Gavin, thank you very much for taking part in today's episode. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can read the full blog and find more news on renewable energy at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ORECatapult.